Welcome to Law Technology Now with host Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of ALM's award-winning magazine, Law Technology News. Hear the latest about technology for the legal community. If it's tech, it's a topic right here. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Carbonite Business, online backup for your law office. Carbonite Business backs up your files automatically and continually, so you're always protected. Try it free at Carbonite.com and get two free months with offer code LTN. And Firm Manager, an entirely web-based secure practice management application from LexisNexis that lets you take your office with you wherever you go. Check it out at MyFirmManager.com. And welcome to our December edition of Law Technology Now. I'm thrilled to be here as always. I have a wonderful guest for you today who I think you're going to really enjoy. And we're going to dive into a very hot topic in e-discovery about preservation. Before we do my usual housekeeping, just to remind you that you can find this podcast in three different venues. The first is on the ALM site lawtechnologynow.com with our partner, the Legal Talk Network at legaltalknetwork.com. And as I always say, because we are so cool, we're in the iTunes podcast library. And before I forget, a shout out to our wonderful sponsors, Carbonite Business and Firm Manager from LexisNexis. You'll hear more from them at the break. Um, Preservation has in eDiscovery has been probably one of the hottest topics of the year. And there's an interesting trend going on, which is after quite a lot of judicial decisions that we're pushing uh, for more and more uh, earlier points at which litigants were expected to start saving and preserving documents, we're now seeing some pushback, particularly from the defense bar. And our guest today is the fabulous Robert Owen, a.k.a. Bob, who is a member of LTN's editorial advisory board and recently switched from Fulbright to Sutherland, Aspill, and Brennan, and he's based in New York City. I'd like to welcome you, Bob, and uh, tell our listeners, if you would, please, a little bit about about your practice and how you got interested in e-discovery. Uh, good morning, Monica, and thank you. I uh, moved to New York and. 73 to take a big job downtown. I've been a commercial litigator in New York City ever since. A lot of my practice in the 80s and 90s concerned computers because I was the New York counsel for Wang Laboratories. And uh, in the the last 10 years or so, that computer background uh, was extremely helpful because of the uh, increasing importance of e-discovery in all kinds of litigation, but especially in the larger complex cases that uh, my practice tends to have. I uh, am currently at Sutherland Asbill and Brennan in New York City. Um, I'm continuing my commercial litigation practice, um, but I have been putting in a lot of effort on this preservation issue um, over the last year, year and a half. Now, for our listeners who might not have as much uh, drill down about what preservation is and why it's such a hot issue with any discovery. Could you give us a little context of how we got here, maybe starting very quickly with Zuba, Zuba Lake? Am I pronouncing that right? I should know it by now. Zuba Lake is the pronunciation. In 2003, uh, Judge Shinlin in the Southern District of New York, as I'm sure most people know or have heard, announced uh, what amounts to an affirmative preservation rule, uh, changing the uh, the 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 older law against spoliation. In other words, 
uh, what happened was the duty not to destroy evidence was transformed into an affirmative duty to preserve all of the evidence possibly relevant to a case. And in the electronic world, this led and has led to massively expensive, disrupting, and, and difficult processes by which large data-producing entities, we're talking American corporations for the most part, um, have to go out and affirmatively preserve information that might be relevant to a case that they reasonably anticipate being filed at some point. You can you can see that this has introduced a great deal of uncertainty into the process. And at the Advisory Committee on Civil Rules mini-conference in Dallas, uh, Microsoft submitted a letter saying that of the 14,000 litigation holds they have in place, two-thirds of them pertain to matters that haven't even been filed in court. General Electric um, has said that their number is 40%. Uh, and it's a shocking situation because companies are spending massive amounts of money and diverting massive amounts of of personnel um, uh, attention and skill to this affirmative preservation effort um, without really any evidence that it's necessary. Now, in the last uh, probably two years, there have been some very dramatic cases and probably none more dramatic, which probably shocked and entertained the legal profession more than uh, a case Judge Grimm had in Baltimore uh, called Victor Victor Stanley. Um, That was a case where the actions were so totally off the top that one might suggest that it might be an aberration. But how did, because that was such a a dramatic case, how did that uh, affect the movement towards preservation, if at all, or how did its notoriety help bring this issue to the front so that people could better understand it? I don't know that Victor Stanley uh, pushed preservation to the fore. Victor Stanley is another one of these poster child cases where uh, extremely bad facts uh, has led to the the creation of this judge-made preservation uh, regimen that we, we operate under. Um, I really think what what has happened is the the chorus of complaints uh, from the people who are suffering because of this preservation requirement uh, has gotten louder and louder. Um, I co-chaired the Sedona Conference on Complex Litigation in April of 2010. It was consciously held a month before the Duke Conference, and um, we focused on preservation as as one of the key issues that we were hearing a lot of uh, complaints about. My co-chair, Bill Butterfield, uh, uh, who's a, a wonderful lawyer, and, and he's on the other side of this question, but but uh, the conference did focus on preservation. Lee Rosenthal was there. Shira Schindler was there. And it was obvious that the discussions coming up from the audience uh, indicated to them and to us that uh, the time had come to really address preservation. It was addressed in more detail at the Duke conference a month later, and that led to the advisory committee uh, taking some actions on preservation, and that leads us to the mini-conference in Dallas um, 
of this uh, September of this year. Bob, let me interrupt you for a second because some of our listeners are not as inside baseball as you and I are. Uh, can you uh, explain to the listeners what this judicial committee is, what Sedona is, and w- what the interactions, who are the players who can make these changes and give us a little frame of reference? Good idea. Sorry. The Advisory Committee on Civil Rules is constituted by the the Standing Committee, which is itself constituted by the Federal Judicial Conference. It has responsibility for proposing amendments to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and other civil rules. And um, in recent years, it has been chaired by Judge Lee Rosenthal of the District of Southern District of Texas. Um, and as I said, she was at the conference that I chaired a year and a half ago. Um, and Sedona is, of course, the think tank that was begun more than 10 years ago. It promulgated the Sedona principles and the Sedona guidelines. And it was early in the e-discovery space. It's done a terrific job of of, uh, of uh, gathering people together, uh, judges, practitioners, uh, clients, to to uh, reason through and dialogue with with the participants on you know where the law ought to be going, and um, and so the Sedona Conference for many years has had a leading role in the area. And the Judicial Council, if I recall correctly, that's the entity that was responsible primarily for the 2006 revisions of of the uh, rules. The e-discovery amendments that were promulgated in 2006 did come out of the Advisory Committee on Civil Rules and had to go through the Standing Committee, the Judicial Conference, and then to the Supreme Court. So, uh, yes, that is the committee that's responsible for suggesting amendments to the Civil Rules. That is the committee that, at its meeting last week, devoted two hours uh, to the question of preservation. Um, and we can expect developments from the uh, the advisory committee in the next six months or so. I believe there's another meeting in March of 2012. Uh, exactly what will happen there, exactly what will be presented there, uh, is unknown right now. And in our December issue of Law Technology News, you wrote a wonderful article called Reset to Neutral, where you put forward five proposals for change, five rules proposals that you are, you and others are pushing. Um, before we take our break, tell us a little bit about, about what the first proposal is that you have on the plate. I was invited to speak at the September 9th mini-conference convened by the Advisory Committee on Civil Rules. It was held in Dallas. 25 people from around the country were invited speakers, and speaker is a misnomer. We were participants in a roundtable discussion, um, and I was one of about five from a defense-oriented law firms. I made a proposal at the conference that um, we adopt a rule as a, as a country uh, to abandon the reasonable anticipation of litigation standard um, and go to a different trigger, which is actually my second proposal. But but let me begin with the first of the five proposals. The first proposal that I have uh, made is that there simply be a general prohibition against the intentional destruction of materials, paper documents, electronic information, that is still within its duly adopted retention period. 
if you're doing so with the intention of depriving an adversary in litigation or a potential adversary in litigation of access to that material. So it would be a blanket prohibition. I believe that the law is there already, but the purpose of the first proposal is A, to remind people that it's there, and B, to make it express that if you, with a bad intent, uh, destroy material for the purpose of keeping it out of the hands of a potential adversary in litigation, that's a sanctionable offense. That's the first proposal. Well, we'll be back with the remaining four after we take a short break to hear from our sponsors, Carbonite Business and Firm Manager from LexisNexis. You've heard of Firm Manager. You've seen ads for Firm Manager. Now you can try Firm Manager free for 30 days at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Firm Manager is the web-based matter management application from LexisNexis that lets you run your practice anywhere, anytime, including your desktop, laptop, mobile phone, or iPad. Take the free 30-day trial today at www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN and spend less time focusing on clerical work and more time on practicing law. Backing up your business files can be a hassle, and it's hard to know if you're doing it right. That's why more law offices are using Carbonite Business Online Backup. With Carbonite Business, your files are backed up automatically and continually. They're stored safely off-site, and each employee can access their backed-up files privately on any computer or on their smartphone or iPad. Try it free at Carbonite.com and get two free months with offer code LTN. That's Carbonite.com, offer code LTN. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. And we're back. Uh, We're speaking with Robert Owen. Uh, partner at, at uh, Sutherland, Aspil, and Brennan here in New York, who's been very active on the e-discovery front. And we're talking about the five proposed rule changes that you are uh, promoting uh, that would affect preservation. Uh, the second one is trigger. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, right now, as I said, the trigger is a, a very uh, uh, indefinite uh, time. It's when you reasonably anticipate the litigation will be filed against you. Um, I would replace that trigger with a, a, a very clear trigger of when a case is actually commenced uh, in federal court, when a complaint is filed. Um, that would be the, the new trigger for affirmative preservation efforts. Um, in the case of administrative proceedings that, are, that have to precede the filing of a complaint, such as the filing of an EEOC claim, um, uh, I would expand the trigger to uh, to be the filing of, of such an administrative proceeding. Uh, that's a very, I, I believe that's a fairly narrow expansion. Um, and so primarily what we're talking about is, is triggering the duty to preserve when a complaint is filed, not months and, and years uh, before a complaint is ever filed. One of the participants in the mini-conference in Dallas told the committee that uh, it had spent $5 million preserving information on a case 
that had not been filed, and it was unsure that the case would ever be filed. But because they had no complaint, they had no adversary to talk to, uh, they had no judge who could rule on the uh, preservation, the reasonableness of their preservation scope uh, and efforts, uh, that they, they felt they had no choice but to, to go to that expenditure. So this trigger would would be a very clear trigger. That would not be that corporations could, could, for their own reasons, decide to preserve evidence, but it would be for their business reasons um, and, and not because uh, a single judge in a single district uh, has decided that that should be the rule. We have just a few more minutes to go, so let's let's get to the remaining three ones. Um, your third is pre-filing preservation orders available for good cause. Tell us about that. Obviously, there would be instances in which information might be lost pre-filing before a plaintiff had the ability to compose and file a complaint. So I would amend Rule 27, which at this point allows parties to go into federal court um, before an action is filed and uh, seek permission to take discovery, pre-filing discovery, the, for the purpose of, of either memorializing uh, a witness's testimony or gathering sufficient facts to, to draft a complaint. I would expand that rule to allow parties to go into court and seek a pre-filing preservation order. And the advantage there would be that uh, the adversaries could talk to one another. They could work it out themselves. If they couldn't, they'd have a judge to resort to. The judge could apply the proportionality principles of 26-2C3. Uh, 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 and uh, it, it would be, uh, uh, I think, a much better process than what we have now where companies have to make their preservation scope decisions uh, far in advance of, of even being served with a complaint. And speaking of scope, that brings us to number four. One of the problems with the current uh, system is that if you haven't been sued, you don't have the complaint, you don't really know what claims are going to be asserted against you. That leads parties inevitably to over-preserve. And so uh, my fourth rule is simply a statement that if, if the trigger were filing of a complaint, uh, the parties under this duty to preserve would have the complaint in front of them uh, and could make more reasoned decisions about the scope of preservation. And finally, you have a rule dealing with sanctions. Uh, right now, there's a great deal of confusion in the country uh, because of inconsistent decisions across jurisdictions as to whether sanctions can be I issued for a mere negligent failure to preserve or whether bad faith is required. Uh, this has led parties to uh, a, great, a point of great confusion as to you know exactly what their exposure to sanctions are. One of the things that came out in the Dallas Mini Conference was was that sanctions, uh, so-called, are anathema to American corporations. They don't want the the damage to their brand. They don't want that damage to their individual careers in house. And so uh, there is a growing movement. The Elsa Lawyers for Civil Justice has made a similar proposal. I believe that sanctions as such should not be issued absent of finding a bad faith. I believe that if information is negligently lost, the remedy for that is more discovery, not sanctions, not monetary sanctions, not adverse inference instructions. Mistakes happen. We have to remember that the standard of proof in our civil justice system is preponderance of the evidence, 5149. It's not perfection. And yet the 
assumption that floats through a lot of our common law of preservation is that if perfection is not achieved, it should be a sanctionable event. So, well, Bob, we're, run, we're running out of time, so I want to ask you, ask you one last question. If our listeners wanted to reach you, what's the best way to do so? And finally, if the listeners are interested in getting more involved in this process, what is your recommendation on how to start? Um, uh, first of all, I can be reached at robert.owen at sutherland.com. Um, I think the best uh, resource right now for information about the um, uh, the rules amendment process is the uh, website of the the uh, advisory committee on civil rules itself, and in particular the one that was created to uh, post the submissions made to the committee with respect to the mini conference. And uh, the citation to that is carried in the article that uh, you are running you know, this month in Law Technology News. It's one.usa.gov forward slash TSGG capital C6. And as Bob said, you can read this article in our December issue, which is available in print and online at www.lawtechnologynews.com. I want to give a shout out, as always, to our team in Boston, Luann Reeb, Scott Hess, Mike Hockman, and Kate Kenny, to my colleagues here in New York, Jill Winward, David Snow, and our producer, David Jasper. And I want to remind you once again that there are three ways to access this podcast at the LegalTalkNetwork.com site, at the LawTechnologyNow.com site, and on iTunes Podcast Library. And a final remember before we wish you a very, very happy new year and look forward to seeing you in January to remember, and this goes once again out to Texas. There's no crying in baseball or technology. We'll see you next year. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Law Technology Now is produced by the broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join Monica Bay for next month's podcast on the technology issues affecting the legal profession today.